0: In 1858, a six-year-old boy was abducted from his home. Who are the kidnappers? The Catholic Church. In this class, we discuss the Mortara Affair, a tragic example of papal anti-Semitism. As always, please like and share this podcast. And if you have any questions, please leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nacho Math. At nightfall... One June evening in 1858, a knock sounds at the door of a Jewish family. Thank you. In Bologna, Italy, then part of the Papal States, the dumbfounded couple, Momolo and Mariana Mortara, find the flanks of police officers awaiting them. Their fright turns to panic when the police chief, when the police chief announces that he has been ordered to take away their six-year-old son, Eduardo. You have been betrayed, the officer tells them. Someone, he says, has secretly baptized the boy, and now that boy is Christian, he cannot remain with his Jewish parents. Despite their pleas to the Inquisitor of Bologna, who had heard the rumor of the Jewish boy's baptism, and ordered the child seized, little Eduardo was removed by the police and sent to a church institution in Rome, dedicated to the conversion of the Jews. That's a pretty dramatic opening. And with a dramatic opening like that, it should be no surprise that the Mortara Affair, which we're going to talk about this morning. Steven Spielberg recently, I think a couple years ago, decided he wanted to make a, a movie about the Mortara Affair. My, la- my understanding is he kind of put it on hold. But, I mean, they, they went all, I think the way I understand is they already got all the way down to casting. And they had, uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, r- real stars lined up. But they had a hard time finding the six-year-old boy to play Eduardo, I don't think he's canceled it. I think he's just kind of put it on hold. And Spielberg does want to turn this into a motion picture. The motion picture is basically based on this book. This book by David Kurtzer. Kurtzer is a professor, I think, in Brown. He's uh, really the leading expert on the Mortara affair. And anyone who wants to learn more about it, this book reads like a novel, he actually would argue, people thought, well, it's, it's uh, what do they call it, uh, uh, historical fiction. Because of, like, the narrative, how much, you know, back and forth and dialogue. And he, he points out, if, and you could get this on Amazon, the name of the book, The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara. He, he points out that, no, it's not a historical fiction, and even though it reads like a novel, the reason it reads like a novel is as we're going to see, this story, uh, which it usually, when we get things on such a granular level in history, it's usually when you're dealing with kings, princes, presidents, people of significance, where we have such detailed, recorded accuracy of intricate interactions. When you're dealing with regular people, very rarely in history, get it so. Fine. We get it on such a granular level. But the reason this case, we know so many details, as, as we're going to see, it made its way into the courts. And things were recorded, and things were notarized, and things were transcribed on a very, very detailed level. So he didn't make this stuff up. And the real conversations and the dialogues are really based on court records, which is really remarkable. One of the oldest Jewish communities continuous Jewish communities in the world is the Jewish community of Italy. Um, We know there to be Jews in Italy certainly by the year 139 before the Common Era, probably even earlier than that. Um, That Jewish community goes way, 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 way back. They're fiercely independent. If you ask someone of Italian Jewish heritage, are you an Ashkenazi or are you Sparty? They will scoff at you and say, neither, I'm Italian. They're very, proud, they're very proud of their Italian Jewish heritage. It really does sort of defy and always has defied Ashkenazic or Sephardic labeling, although they were obviously going to be um, greatly impacted. It was really somewhat independent and still, to, even till today, it's a very small community, really does remain fiercely independent um, of, their, of their heritage. Now, that said, it's always been a very, very, very small Jewish community and i think my understanding now it's probably it's more sphardic but it's it's really got its own distinct flavor they're very proud of their own the liturgy if you follow like the davening the nusach the liturgy that's typically where you will see the most some of the most notable distinctions between sphardic and ashkenazic traditions italian jewry follows their own nusach their own tefillah their own the prayer service um The position of Jews in Italy throughout the early Roman Empire, literally the Roman Empire, began to uh, rapidly and dramatically decline once the Christians came into Rome uh, and they got really involved. So again, there are several expulsions, including one brief expulsion from Bologna in 1172. There were first forced conversions. um, The usual story of medieval Jewry in Europe, which is usually a pretty difficult one. That said... Italian Jewry has produced some remarkable people, including Rabbi Kitanik, you know the Aruch? The Sefer Aruch. The Aruch is from Italy. I didn't know that. Um, the Aruch is from, from Italy. And for those of us who are more of the Muser school of Jewish thought, those who, uh, if you've, got, what, I'm sorry? There you go. Ramchal. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Anyone ever study Mesilat or Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato? We quote that here at the that We quote that book, I don't know, Once an hour. <laughs> we, it's a classic. Rabbi Luzzatto was from Italy. The position of Jews in Italy, they worsened significantly in the early 1200s, as we mentioned. And really, one of the more interesting people is, is after the, we talked about, someone asked about, about Spanish Jewry, after the expulsion... Of the Jews in 1492 from Spain, so really the hero we've talked about in, in this group before. We've talked about the hero of Spanish Jewry uh, was Rabbi Don Isaac of Barbanel. So his story, he he he. After Spain, he goes, I believe, to Portugal for a little bit, but he makes his way over. To Italy. I believe he died in, in in Italy. I think he's buried. In, in my understanding, he's he he uh, he's buried in in Italy. And but again, that's more towards the end of his life. But there you see that's where that Spanish um, the Spanish connection and the Spartic influence. When we talk about countries, we've mentioned this before, it's an important point to reiterate. When we talk about countries, particularly in the historical record, up until the mid-1800s, countries don't really exist. We've mentioned this before, we like thinking that France was this big country called France, and you had the king, and everyone kind of followed the order, and whatever the king says in France... That was, that was the law of the land. The reality is countries didn't really exist because think about it. Before the 1850s, transportation, you, it'll take you a day to go 20 miles. How is your word, you decree that everyone must give King Rabbi Meth a cup of coffee as tribute every day. How is that order going to be received 200 miles away? Who's going to A, hear it? And how is it going to be enforced? Governments I tended... Also. What's that? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the reality was, up until very recent times, <clears throat> countries were much more influenced on the local level. The local governor of your local province was really, in effect, the person who was the king. They were the ones who were practically in charge. We I always say the joke that my history teacher always taught me in my Mrs. Wolf, my AP European history teacher in 11th grade would always tell me remember your AP history the Holy Roman Empire wasn't holy, it wasn't roman and it wasn't an empire because it was just a bunch of little states until Germany, the unification of Germany in what was it 1870, 1880, whatever it was, these were a bunch of tiny states. This is particularly true when we talk about Italy. The Jewish experience in Italy, Italy wasn't a country. I remember being shocked going back all the way back to Mrs. Wolf's 11th grade 8 PM, uh, U.S. Uh, European history class. I remember like waiting to learn about the history of Italy. And it's just there is no history of Italy. Italy was a bunch of tiny little provinces run functionally independently. That said, at the top of that hierarchy was the pope. The pope wasn't just as he is today, sort of the religious leader of the Catholic world. He was the political leader of wherever his reach extended. He was the president, as it were, of those regions. Now, as the 1800s progress, there are movements within Italy for the for kind of a unification of Italy. That Italy should no longer be dominated by the Pope and be a Catholic political country, but it should sort of have its um, its own. Leadership, its own political influence. One of the villains of our story is Pope Pius IX. who was elected Pope in 1846. He was initially widely seen as a great reformer, uh, a modernizer. He was originally thought to be someone who would go ahead and be supportive of Italian unification. Um, but he resisted it. And he was actually exiled in 1848. 1848 was a year of um, a lot of upheaval in, in Europe. There were a lot of failed revolutions in 1848, including in Italy. There was one of these <coughs> attempts to unify Italy and all these different regions in Italy under one political government. It, they tried in 1848, and, and the Pope Pius IX actually had to flee. Uh, but by 1850, he was back. However, his political influence, it... It began to wane, it really shrank, and really by, after, by 1850, he was really relying on French and Austrian troops to really exercise his power and exercise his influence. He, his, his control was really, he was relying on the Austrians and the French. The Jews, now, by, by 1848, you really, it's like kind of, if, if you look at Italy, it was kind of like midway through the boot, was an area known as the Papal States. It kind of goes more of like a crescent. The papal states; these were the areas that were really under the domination of the of the pope. Not again, not just religiously, but politically. And this is going to be an important point. He was the political leader. He was the president of these of these areas in, in a political sense. The Jews of the papal state at this time. Um, you know, they, they had they they had they, again as we mentioned, they had a rich the rich history in the papal state. The Jews in Bologna, which is going to be the place that we're really going to be focused on, they were expelled in 1593 by Pope Clement VIII. They were eventually let back in, I believe, in 1790 is when the the, the Jewish community in Bologna was reestablished. Most of the Jews who ended up settling back in Bologna in the beginning of the 1800s tended to be merchants. By the time that our story rolls around in 1858, there are only about two, three hundred Jews in Bologna. It's a very small, small Jewish community, and you wouldn't even call it a Jewish community. They really wanted to stay under the radar, didn't want to make any waves. They had no synagogue, they had no shul, and they had no rabbi. Can you imagine that? By 1858, in all of Italy, you had roughly 15,000 Jews, which, again, is a small number. It was, again, it's a proud Jewish community, very proud of their heritage, but it's very, very small. At that time, before, I guess before Pope Pius IX became, became the pope, so although the Jews were kind of tolerated in the papal states, they were subject to anti-Semitic laws. For example... They were required to, to listen four times a year. A priest was required to come into the shul and sermonize the congregations. You know, four times a year. Can you imagine that? Trying and to convert them or what? yes, yes, trying to convert them. Yeah. Not only that, Jews were confined. Actually, do you know what the original word ghetto means? So you ever heard. You know the ghetto. Jews yeah. get the word ghetto. Yeah. Yeah. Was, it was a foundry, if I recall correctly. It uh, fa- was a foundry in Venice. And at one point, the Jews were in one round of per- persecution. I think it was already going way back. I think in the early 1500s, I want to say. And they had to run through their lives. They, they ran into this foundry and like sealed themselves shut in there for protection. And it was called the ghetto. And now the, the word... You know, implied a place of protection for Jews, and it got borrowed to kind of a Jewish quarter, a Jewish sealed-off area. And Jews in many, many places were required to live in the ghetto, in these ghettos. And Jews in the papal states were required to live in ghettos. By the way, you know that yellow star? That was actually instituted by uh, I think one of the popes at this, you know, in the 1500s, of an w- easy way of identifying Jews. Pius IX, when he gets elected. At first, he becomes a little bit more tolerant. He does away with the sermonizing. He takes down the ghetto walls. But after he has to, ab- not really abdicate, after he has to flee in 1848, on his return in 1850, he reinstitutes some of those anti-Semitic decrees. One of the things that, interestingly, one of the, requ- one of the laws, these anti-Semitic laws, on the books, at least, was that if you were a Jewish you could not have a non-Jewish or a Catholic to work as a maid. You couldn't have a Catholic maid in your house. Now the Jews wanted Catholic maids. Why? Bingo. Tamar. very good. They wanted a Shabbos guy. And for those of you, for but that on Shabbos, sometimes it's actually one of these areas of halacha which is deeply misunderstood. But putting that aside, it was helpful having non-Jews to take care of things on Shabbos, particularly. That was technically illegal. You were not allowed to have Catholic maids. However, this was the type of thing that the Catholic Church, which again they're the police state, they are the government. They they turned a blind eye. They were okay. They understood that it was like speeding. You know, everyone knows that everyone speeds, but uh, whatever, we let it slide. But it was on the books, and we're going to see that was very significant. In the in around 1850, as we mentioned, the family, the Mortaras. Moved to Bologna. Mortara's, his Mr. Mortara, his, his name is Salomon. He's known as Mamolo. And his wife, Mariana, they moved to Bologna in 1850. He is a merchant. I, I don't know why I have in my mind that he sold carpets, but I might be wrong on that. Let me see. I don't know why I have that he was in the carpet trade, but I, I might be messing that up. In any event, the Mortaras moved to Bologna in 1850. They have their six child. They ha- end up having eight children. But their sixth child is sixth child is born on August twenty seventh, eighteen fifty one. Shortly after they moved back to Bologna, and his name is Eduardo. A few months after Eduardo's birth, the Mortaras hired illegally a Catholic woman to be their maid. Her name is Anna Marisi, an eighteen year old Catholic maid. Why did they? What, what was the story? The Jews typically, oftentimes, they hired these single girls who were broke, had no money, needed money for a dowry so that they could get married, and that's who they employed. Now, this Anna Marisi lived a little bit, not, not the most ethical of lives. She became pregnant while single, and which was not super uncommon for unmarried servants in Bologna at that time, but it was considered very disgraceful. And she should have been, and easily could have been, become an outcast in the Catholic community. The Mortaras were compassionate, and they really kind of took care of her during this difficult time in her life. And, uh, you know, they brought her into, into their lives and really took care of her. In 1857, the end of 1857, the Inquisitor of Bologna was a fellow named Pierre... I can't pronounce that. Filetti. I can't pronounce his middle name. I apologize to all my Italian friends. <laughs> Filetti learns rumors of the effect that a secret baptism had been administered to one of the city's Jewish children. Now, you might be asking, Inquisitor? As in the Spanish Inquisition? Wasn't that in 1492? The answer is yes. It's the same Inquisition. We think of the Inquisition as really part of the Jewish expulsion of 1492. the Inquisition did not go away after that point. It's a misconception a lot of Jews have is that the Inquisition was this body that was determined to get rid of the Jews. That's actually not what the Inquisition was. The Inquisition was a, a part it was a, um, an administration within the Catholic Church. There were, they were tasked to make sure that within the Catholic Church, there wasn't any heresy. They were sort of the religious police internally within the Catholic Church. They actually had no jurisdiction to Jews. The reason why we associate the, Spanish, the Inquisition with the, the Jewish expulsion of, 1840, of 1492 is because in 1492, the Jews were, there was a different decree, the Alhambra decree, where the Jews were banned, were, were expelled from Spain unless they converted, which many did. At once they converted, so now they fell under the jurisdiction of the Inquisition, and they would weed out many of the Jews who were what were, ended up being called Moranos. These were conversos, the Jews who had just converted, but were really secretly practicing their Judaism. So then they were potentially subject to the Inquisition, and many were often burned, literally burned at the stake. Then they were subject to the Inquisition. The Inquisition did not go away to 1492. I believe the Inquisition still technically still exists. They just gave it a different name. And obviously the Catholic Church doesn't have nearly the same political influence um, that it did back then. Although never under, I always say, never under, under, even though the the Pope and the the Catholic Church is a a shadow, a shell of what it used to be, never underestimate the Catholic Church. They are a very, very powerful um, organization. That said the Inquisition certainly was still around in the mid-1800s. And their job was to make sure, internally, Catholics were practicing their religion as appropriate. And Folletti hears rumors that there was a child, a Jewish child, in Bologna who had been baptized. If true, if this child was baptized, that would make the child a Catholic... And according to the Catholic halacha, according to the Catholic law, a a child who's Christian could not be raised by non-Christians and must be removed from their parents' houses. Now, cases like this were actually not so uncommon. They were not so uncommon. However, the official church position was that Catholics should not baptize Jewish children without their parents' consent. The rule was that people should not be going around baptizing Jewish children, with one exception. If the child was on the brink of death, if the child was on the brink of death, so as a last resort, you want to make sure the child goes to heaven, so then it would be okay to baptize a child. Jewish families were concerned about this, because they knew this rule that if a child got baptized, you know, he could not be raised in a Jewish household, so families feared clandestine baptisms by their Christian maids. This was not like some crazy thing. They were concerned about this. And as a matter of fact, they required their, their Christian maids leaving their employment when they had left to sign notarized statements confirming that they had never baptized any of their children. Mm-hmm. So you say, like, why would that be happening? The reason is because is this was something that was a real concern that, that Jewish parents had. What's this them from lying anyway? Oh, uh, thank you. We're going to see. It's a, great, it's a terrifying question. So Folletti in 1857 hears that there has been a child baptized. There are these rumors circulating that there's been a child baptized in Bologna. So he does his homework and his investigations and he's able to track these rumors coming from this, this woman, this, this uh, Catholic maid, Anna Marisi. He gets permission from the Universal Inquisition, the Holy Office. This is a, a body of cardinals responsible for overseeing and defending the Catholic doctrine. Faletti goes ahead and he investigates her. Faletti discovered that while she was employed by the Mortaras, their infant son Eduardo had become deathly ill. She had become deathly ill, and Anna Marisi says that she per- tells Faletti that she performs an emergency baptism herself she did the baptism herself sprinkling water so really to do a baptism l'harkhila as they say preferably you need to use holy water i don't know how you get holy water in the catholic church i'm not sure what makes water holy i have no idea i'm not an expert but bidyed if you don't have holy water any water will do you could just so see this like in Jewish, like in the code of Jewish law. It was water. What if the water has lemon juice in it? Is that okay? How much water do you need to reveal? Like you could just, it's amazing. It's she, what? You could totally see that, right? So she goes, and she, this is what Filetti finds out, is that Anna Marisi took some water, sprinkles it on Eduardo's head, and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but never revealed it to their parents. Because the child, the child of Eduardo was deathly ill. Miraculously or fortuitously, Eduardo recovered. But she never told anyone. But somehow the rumor got out. Eventually, Filetti finds out about it, investigates, and Anna Marisi says what happened. This is the story after the investigation. Meanwhile, Eduardo's recovered. Now he's a six year old boy in Bologna. Filetti and Marisi swear to keep the story quiet. They send a transcript of the interview to Rome, requesting permission to remove the now six-year-old Eduardo. Hold the story right now. Fast forward a little bit, you know, farther. We'll see. Eventually, what's going to end up, the story is going to come out that what happened was uh, Marisi would tell that she, uh, what she told Faletti, she said that she went over to a grocer named Cesar Lepori, and it was this guy Lepori who's the villain, according to Marisi, he was the one who suggested baptism when she mentioned to him that Eduardo was, was uh, deathly ill. Um, according to, whatever, an uncle, Maurici described crying during interrogation by the Inquisitor and expressed guilt over Eduardo's remo- removal. This is her words. Figuring that it was all my fault, I was very unhappy and still am. Um... And she was supposedly broken. And it was probably this grocer who was the fellow who went ahead and told Marisi um, what to do and how to baptize doing an emergency baptism. He was the one that suggested it. She was naive. She was 18. She was young. She was unlearned. And she went ahead and she was the one that baptized the child. Now, filetti goes ahead and he sends this question to Rome. What do we do? It's unclear at this point. Historians are, d- are divided. Was the Pope involved at this point in the process? Was the Pope the one who said, yes, remove Eduardo? Historian, it's not clear. But in any event, what is clear is that Rome definitely did go and tell Falletti yes, remove the child. For the Holy Office, for the Inquisition, situations like this uh, were a real, real difficult... They were a quandary. They were a real difficulty. On the one hand, uh, the... the, the Catholic halacha, according to the, to the Catholic law, this child can no longer remain in a Jewish household. But on the other hand, this is going to be a scandal. You're going to abduct the child from, her, from the child's uh, mother's arms. In either event, Folletti is instructed by, the, by Rome to remove Eduardo, And a detailed military police led by a guy named Lucidi, on, as you mentioned, they go ahead in 1858, they ask a few questions as we mount. Lucidi announced, it's crazy, Signor Mortara, I'm sorry to inform you that you are the victim of betrayal and explained through under order of Feletti to remove Eduardo. His mother, when he hears what's going on, screams in a panic and has a breakdown. Uh, runs hysterically to Eduardo's bed, shriek that they would have to kill her before taking her. Lucidi said repeatedly that he was only following instructions. I'm just the police officer. I'm just the agent. Don't shoot the messenger. And he would later said he would have had a thousand times preferred to be exposed to much more serious dangers in performing my duties than to have to witness such a painful scene. Um, they begged the police officer, give us 20, just give us one last day with Eduardo, uh, You know, just to, I want, don't, don't just take him right there. It's, they, they gave them one day with Edgardo. Um They spent that whole day trying to petition anyone that they could in the Catholic Church in Bologna, all to no avail. Um, they decided, they knew that they were going to lose their child, so they decided to do it in, in uh, you know, to, to not make as big of a scene as possible. They tried moving the, they had all the siblings go to friends' houses, and indeed the child was, uh, Lucidi entered the apartment, removed Gardo from his father's arms, uh, and the policemen were apparently, supposedly the police were crying as they were just following their orders. Mamolo followed the police down the streets where he fainted. Child's abducted. Next day, next few days, Mamolo regains his composure and tries, you know, making this kidnapping, you know, a public ordeal. Let the let the public know about it. Uh, get support from Jews in in the Papal States, Jews around Italy, and Jews around the world to try to let them know what, what can be done. They send out to the Kingdom of Sardinia, to Britain, to France, even to the United States, to see what to get as much press attention um, as they possibly could, to see what ATSA, what, what options do we have. The papal government, was uh, their hope was that this would just go away. Like, they understood that this is like, kind of a weird situation. Their hope and their plan and strategy was that the thing should be buried and just ignore it. Um, however, the, the church's many uh, detractors and people who didn't like the church saw this as a great opportunity to expose the evils of the Catholic church. The whole summer, Momolo, uh, you know, he he was able to eventually track down where his son Eduardo had been had been uh, whisked off to, and he was able. It, it was a whole series of a bizarre series of events. He's able to finally track down where his child is, and the the rule really was that in these types of situations, a parent was allowed to see their child once, and that was it. That was the that was really the rule. They would get one visit to say goodbye to their child, and that was it. But you already get a sense that the church realized that something, this was not a typical situation. Because Mamola was given, um, he was allowed to see his child many, many times. But again, his child is off in some, in some Catholic convent somewhere, some church, some, some school. Um, and his father allowed to visit him. There are two narratives of what, what ended up happening. And this is a, a few months later. So two narratives according to Momolo in the Jewish version, um, the helpless Eduardo had spent the journey to Rome crying for his parents and wanting nothing. He just wanted to come back home. And the Catholic church said, no, as soon as, 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 as Eduardo made it into the, in, under the church auspices, he immediately became this born-again Christian. And he was this righteous, pious child who saw Jesus everywhere. He turned and was super inspired and was transformed and blessed and immediately embraced Catholicism. And he had spiritual strength far beyond his years. This is going to be the, the kind of the running theme. There are always going to be two sides of the story. You have the Jewish version, version you have the Catholic version. By July, by kind of like as I mentioned, by the summer, the story has kind of made it is slowly trickling, not slowly, is now out in the international world. And meanwhile, uh, Bariana, Eduardo's mother, is on the verge of collapse and is totally broken down and is on the verge of dying. And his people are saying she's going insane. And this heartbreaking story is being, you know, wired across the world. There are many different versions in the Catholic story, but the bottom line is the one thing that they kept on saying is that Eduardo is a righteous, pious Catholic, and he doesn't want to go back to his family. At six years old. At six years old. By the end of the summer, Momolo realizes this is not going to be a quick fix. So he decides he's going to take more of a legal approach and try to find out what exactly happened. What was the story? Who was the one that baptized this child? What were the facts of the case? Could there be anything done, you know, sort of from a legal perspective to undo this baptism? So after a lot of investigation, they indeed found out that it was Maurici who was the one who, uh, who baptized um, Eduardo. And Momolo basically died. He, he, he had a couple-pronged attack. He first tries to discredit her, discredit her as a person, as a witness, bringing up the fact that you know she was an adulteress, as we talked about earlier. She should be discredited. She shouldn't be believed. She was constantly flirting with all the soldiers and living an immoral lifestyle. She was un, un, untrustworthy. They also confronted this Lepori, the grocer from Marisi, uh, and when Momolo visited the shop in October, um, the grocer, he denied having anything to ever speaking to he says, "Never, I never spoke to her. It couldn't have been me who's the one who told her you know, how to baptize a child. It couldn't have been me who's the one who encouraged her to baptize this child. I don't, it wasn't me. A further report from Bologna in October, um, they, they went ahead, they, 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 um, they just, the dates didn't line up. They spoke to the family doctor. The family doctor said, yes, indeed, Eduardo was sick at one point, but during the time of his illness, Anna Marisi couldn't possibly have baptized uh, Eduardo. She was also sick and living on the other side of the town. It was impossible for her to have been the one to do the, uh, to, um, to do the, uh, the baptism. The dates didn't line up. It was impossible. Um, they, again, they then had many Catholics Uh, notable people in the community, also attesting that Anna Marie, she can't be trusted. She was a scoundrel. She was a liar. She was immoral. Her story couldn't uh, couldn't be believed. And all of these arguments, these legal arguments, trying to invalidate, as it were, this baptism, or to call it into question, the truthfulness of the story, this is an important point. They all make it back, and at this point, the Pope is now involved. Pope Pius IX. And his argument back is, very interesting. Maybe, maybe not. The bottom line is, I'm being told that this child is baptized. I can't return him. He's now a Catholic child, and the halacha, <laughs> state geschriben, the law, in, according to the Catholic doctrine, is this child can't be returned to a Jewish months? home. How many months? This is already by the end of the summer, only a few months later. A few months after that, eventually, um, Mariana is allowed to meet her child, Um, They set out for Rome. This is now October of 1858, so in the fall, so this is now, what, six months later. Um, And Mariana is allowed to to meet. Initially, they don't let her. They actually are. Momolo and Mariana are arrested, but then they're the, the, the story becomes, becomes such a, a big deal that they're allowed to see their child. And again, two different versions of the story. According to the, the Mortares, the boy was obviously intimidated by the clergyman around him, threw himself on his mother's arms when he first saw her. And Mariana would later say he had lost weight, he was turning pale, his eyes were filled with, teller, with, with terror. And... She, the, and Eduardo said, would tell his mother, you know, the second that he says, Mommy, every day I say the Shema Yisrael, I recite Shema, Shema Yisrael, I affirm my Judaism. Right? That's the Jewish version. The church version. <laughs> when Eduardo first meets his mother, he's horrified by his mother's extortions to return to Judaism of his ancestors. He tries, you know, proselytizing and convincing his parents to, to get baptized themselves. <laughs> at six years old. old. <laughs> The church, the church says, you can raise your child. They, they kind of, threat, I guess, leverage the situation. And they say, if you go ahead, if the Mortaras would go ahead and get baptized, then they can have their child back. To which they said, we would rather be killed. Pope Pius Ninth took a liking to Edguardo and functionally became his father. He raised him, he had raised Edguardo as his own child Um, and his determination to keep Edgardo from his parents turned into a strong paternal attachment in Edgardo's memoirs he would write that the pontiff regularly spent time with him played with him the pope uh, would you know play hide and seek with him Mm. the story becomes an international an international story Comes a massive uh, uh, controversy. It makes its way to the United States, which is fascinating. The Jewish community in the United States, and the reason why this is, is fascinating, just as an aside, why I find this fascinating, is if you study right, what's happening in 1858 in the United States. Revolution. Civil War is almost happening. Civil War is right around the corner. So the Moritar affair, if we, if we fast forward just a few years, um, for those, we, we, we touched on it on that Lincoln class, if anyone's at the Lincoln class. But we had a whole class a couple of years ago. Uh, we should really do it again. About General Grant, his uh, n- n- uh, pernicious General Orders Number 11, yeah. where the Jews are expelled. One of the reasons why that's, you know, that's a whole story in its own right. Uh, I encourage everyone to check out my podcast if you want to hear an audio version of General of General Grant's order General Order Number 11. The Jewish community... Um, united to to get that decree to get general order number 11 revoked and they it did it got lincoln revokes it immediately people always talk about this is it's interesting this is one of the first times in history certainly in american jewish history but even in jewish history where jews kind of come together as activists to try to solve a problem if you go back in jewish history you don't really have activism where does activism start General Grant's order, General Order Number 11 in the United States is really probably the first time the American Jewish community comes together to solve a problem. And you see in, in, in that story, you see references to how the Jewish community a few years earlier in the United States had come together to try to protest the United States government and argue that the government should protest this, the Mortara Affair. So you have like the antecedents, like this, this was one of the first, the reason why, the, one of the reasons why the Mortara Affair is so significant in Jewish history, although it's kind of a footnote, but one of the reasons why it's so interesting is it really is one of the first times that the Jewish community unites on an, certainly on an international level, or certainly on, a, on not just a local political level, but on, a, on an issue that's not just relevant to their little community, but might be relevant to a community next door or a community around the globe, and the Jewish community to, to speak out about it and to petition their, their leaders, their government, to do something about it. And the Mortar affair is kind of what one of the... There was really one other episode before this, and that was the Damascus blood libels of 1840, which, you know, kind of deserves its own class in its own right. But these were sort of the first episodes in Jew, world Jewish history where the Jewish world as it was kind of comes together to protest and outrage, which leads to the question that a lot of scholars try to figure out why was it that this issue, the Mortara affair, becomes like a galvanizing point? To highlight the question, if you study Eastern European history, particularly in Russia, kidnappings were not unheard of. This was actually part of Jewish life where the chappers, if you ever heard of the chappers, was a horrible part of, of, uh, of Jewish life in Russia, is children were conscripted into the army. And every little town had a quota of children that needed to be filled to serve in the Russian army. And if the town couldn't fulfill its, its quota, you know, who are the easiest kid, children to be, people to be preyed upon? The weak, the disadvantaged, the poor, the orphaned. And kids would little be, little, literally be hopped. Hop" means to grab. And the hoppers, the grabbers, would abduct children and press them into the Russian army being pressed into the Russian army, you served for a short 45 years. It was functionally, a, a, if not a physical death, death sentence, it was almost certainly a spiritual death sentence. These types of things have been happening for a long time. Why are they happening here specifically? Does the Mortar affair get such world uh, recognition? Is there such um, outrage? I have a couple of answers. My theory, three answers is, first of all, this is in Italy. It's not a backwards place like Russia, like Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe was a backwards place. It still is a backwards place. It, 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 was, like, it was like a backwater. It was, it was not a modernized country. Italy was a, a real place. It was a real place. Number two, here's where, I, again, for those of you who study your American history, in the 1850s, particularly in the United States, there was a rise of what was called the American Party. No one's ever heard of the American Party, but you may have heard of the Know-Nothing Party. And remember your U.S. history? Again, I'm going to send you back to U.S. history class. Do you remember the Know-Nothing Party? The Know-Nothing Party in the 1850s. What's that? Still have it. it. The the Know-Nothing... Exactly. The Know-Nothing Party of the 1850s was a party that really its main platform was xenophobia. People think it was an anti-Semitic party. It really wasn't. They weren't against Jews. They, they weren't even against blacks. It was interesting. Many of the biggest abolitionists in the 1850s, the decade leading up to the Civil War, many of the greatest abolitionists, I believe Thaddeus Stevens was a, was a, was a Know-Nothing, their main platform was they were anti-Catholic. They were terribly xenophobic. All of the real... You know, the righteous and pious abolitionists in New England and New York were all know-nothings. It's so weird how these people, you know, speaking out against, about, uh, against slavery and the discrimination were the biggest bigots themselves. They hated the Catholics. And they had this party um, that was their main, their, basically their main platform was anti-Catholic. Um, it kind of fell apart. Because they didn't, they were divided about slavery, and slavery was the issue of the day in the United States. So the party was short-lived, uh, but it was very influential for, for its time. Why were they called the Know Nothings? Anyone remember. I remember because they were a secret. They were very. This was a, one of probably the most significant third party in American history were the Know Nothings. The reason why they were so uh, why they were called the Know Nothings is because they started off as a secretive group. And you were instructed when you became when you joined the party, if someone asked you, "What's your party about?" What are you supposed to respond? I know nothing. I know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> and literally, and they became the know. That's what they're, they're referred to as the know nothing party. But they stood up. Now they were kind of in response because there is in in 1840s and 1850s you had a big rise in Irish immigration to the United States, and the Irish tended to be sorry, Rabbi Goldman. Um, for those who got that reverence, um, they were Catholic. The Irish were Catholic. And it was good old-fashioned xenophobia. People hated the Catholics. So you have all of this, the rise of anti-Catholicism in the 1850s, and you have this more taro affair, which doesn't put the Catholic Church into very good light, you know, going ahead and stealing babies. It was made for a great story. I have a third theory. I think it's a confluence of a number of things. I think there's a third piece here. And it's... Good old technology. If you would have rewinded this case 100 years ago, 50 years ago, I think even 25 years ago, so you have some case of abduction in Italy. How in the world are people going to find out about that in the United States on the other side of the globe? It should take you, oh, a good six months for news to travel. But by 1858, what had been invented? The telegraph. The telegraph. News, news of this story hit the United States the same day. So people found out about this real quickly. But it used to be a story like this, you'd hear the story about it six months later. Who knows the end of the story? But in those six months, the story may have been completely changed and all the background of the story may have completely changed. This story was still there. Governments try to... Intervened the Rothschild family, the very wealthy and influential Jewish family, the Rothschild. They tried influ- they, they went ahead, they petitioned Napoleon III of France, who again was a significant person because his army was protecting the Pope. And he gets upset. And uh, threatened to pull his, uh, his garrison from Rome. Not Pius IX was the one who ordered Eduardo's abduction. What is certain is that he was great. He was, number one, he was surprised uh, by the outrage. And number two, he adopted the position based on Catholic law that to return the baptized child to his non-Christian family would be incompatible with church doctrine. Moses Montefiore, the other significant influential Jew of the time, he actually goes down, he was the one who. who during, I mentioned briefly that the Damascus blood libel of 1840, he had been sort of the spokesperson, the unofficial spokesperson of the Jewish people to really go ahead and, and um, flex his muscles to do something about that. He went to the Pope in, in 1858 um, to go ahead and try to petition the Pope. Literally the day he got there, the next day that he got there, I mentioned when we started, that the unification of, of Italy was this process. 1848, the, Rome had, the, the Pope had to run. He then comes back. But by this time, the efforts to unify Italy um, really jumped. And, and there was kind of a war broke out the day that Montefiore, Montefiore gets, to, gets to Italy. And he has to kind of leave. He isn't really able to get an audience with the Pope. Eventually, you know, shortly thereafter, after Montefiore leaves, um, the period of Italian unification begins, um, and ultimately by 1870, if we fast forward 10 years, the Pope is going to functionally lose almost all of his political control over the papal states. So Pius IX is considered a real loser in, the Catholic, in Catholic history. He's the guy that lost the political power of the, of the, of the Catholic Church. By 1870, Italy is unified, it's its, its own country, and, uh, and he loses. Bologna, by the earl, by 1860, the, pope, the Pope's control of Bologna um, falls away, and it becomes a, I guess what you'd call, like a liberal real country, and uh, the Inquisition is abolished, um, and the Mortar affair, this is like maybe a year or two later, the Mortar affair is is highlighted. Meanwhile, little Eduardo is not little so little anymore. He is still in a Catholic school, being raised by the Pope. Two officers, now that Bologna is is now becoming liberalized, the real country, they want to go ahead and they investigate this Mortara affair, and they go back to our one of our, our villains of the story, Folletti, and they arrest him for kidnapping. He claims two things. A, I was following orders. You've heard that argument before. And that B, a sacred oath, precluded him from discussing. He can't tell any of the details. He swore an oath of allegiance to the Pope. He couldn't, he couldn't say anything. Eventually, he was tried and acquitted. The end of the story is uh, it's actually quite sad. By 1870, Eduardo is now 19. And the French, the Prussians, they had, uh, they had already left. They're no longer defending the church. And by 1870, Rome really falls to Italy. Um Mamolo Matara follows an Italian arm, army into Rome hoping to finally reclaim his son. According to some accounts, he was preceded by his son Ricardo, Eduardo's older brother, who is a soldier in the Italian army. Um <laughs> And they finally bump into Eduardo, and Eduardo like holds up a cross and says, "Get back, Satan," something like that. There is, if you Google, a picture of Eduardo Mortara. You'll see a picture of him. We don't know the exact dates. Most people think it's shortly after this reuniting of sorts, and it's probably a little later because Eduardo becomes ordained as a priest, so he's wearing his priest priestly vestments. It's a shocking picture. You see him kind of standing there, like. His mom's sitting next to him, like, and then, like, his brother, like, like, the facial expressions are priceless of, like, there is, obviously, it's been a family that's torn apart. Uh, Mortara, Father Mortara, spends most of his life, uh, he's actually was, he was, uh, the Pope gave him a stipend basically to support him the rest of his life. Uh, Mortara um, would spend the rest of his life mainly outside of Italy, uh, traveling throughout Europe, preaching, trying to convert Jews to Catholicism. He could give sermons in six languages uh, and could read Hebrew as well. And as a preacher, he was in great demand. He actually, if I recall correctly, uh, he wanted to go ahead and preach in the United States to the Jews, but I think the Catholic community in the United States did not want him to come because he was such a polarizing. His whole story was so polarizing. <laughs> Mamolo Mortara dies in 1871. Uh, it's a crazy story. His end game is terrible. Um, the last couple months of his life, he had this guy bad luck with, with Catholic maids. He was accused. Well, he, not a, he had a Catholic maid who was pushed out of a window and killed. And he was accused of murdering the second Catholic maid. Um, eventually, he'd be acquitted. But he spent six months in prison, accused of murder. He dies in 1871. Uh, eventually, his mother dies. They kind of reconcile to some degree, but not fully, because Eduardo wants his mother to convert. There is a legend that, his, that Mariana converts on her deathbed. But uh, Eduardo, in his memoir, says, he, although he wishes that to be true, it wasn't true kind of just maybe to and we'll end just with a couple lessons but before we do that uh, the story of Mortara it's an interesting thing he actually lived a very very long life Eduardo Mortara dies in 1940 wow. Wow. he dies in Belgium three months before the Nazis overrun Belgium had they captured Mar- Mortara Eduardo Mortara the priest raised by the Pope what would have happened to him? he would have been sent to Auschwitz One of the questions that people, historians, reflecting on this crazy story is, what, what, what was going through the Pope's mind throughout all of this? Was he sinister? Was he diabolical? What were his thoughts? What were his motives? I, I don't know, obviously. I can't get into some dead Pope's brains and motives. It's hard to figure that out. But what's, what's fascinating is, it, it, it's actually interesting, a... Uh, the memoirs of Eduardo Mortaro are recently published. They were written in Italian and published. There's a lot of controversy about the translation of it. Um, Kurtzer argues that it's been mistranslated, it's a very poor translation, and clearly slanted um, towards a Catholic perspective. There is this um, essay written by Father, the, I can't pronounce it, Cesario some Italian fellow who researched it, who basically, uh, it's interesting, Pius IX, by some of the more conservative elements, even to today, let's we'll back it up, post-pi- Pius IX was beatified in 2000. He was turned into a saint. Mm-hmm. And it was when that happened, it really, the Jewish community, like the Mortara affair really kind of there was a resurgence of awareness of the Mortar affair. Saying, "How can you beatify this guy? This guy's a kidnapper. He abducted a, a, a Jewish child." Um, many conserva- conservatives um, within the Catholic Church, even till today, they now Pius the is considered a bit of a hero. Not so much because they believe in kidnapping, but they will tell you is it's an interesting thing is that Pius the Ninth. What were his motives? He felt terrible about the kidnapping, but he believed in Catholic law. And Catholic law says it shouldn't have been done, he shouldn't have been baptized, but now that he's baptized and we have this tension between Catholic law and natural moral law, on the other hand, what should win? Catholic law. Pope Francis nowadays, Pope Francis nowadays tends to be much more liberal, and many of the conservatives nowadays, they want to kind of put on a plateau these guys like the Pius IX, as outrageous as it is, and they want to say we need more of more of the good old-fashioned, you know, adherence to good old-fashioned Catholic doctrine. So he publishes this, this paper, kind of putting Pius IX as a hero for someone who should be looked at. Now yeah, I see something, right? We're not happy the about pope this. The Pope changes things, okay? It's the only religion I know of where they change the rules as they go along. Each Pope is Couldn't they have figured out a workaround for this problem? They're hypocrites. One of the great interesting, I mean, this is obviously a bit one of the most, it's it, it, you want to pull your hair out, right, when you read a story like this. And maybe we'll just take questions in one second, we'll just go through a couple just quick ideas and then we'll, we'll open up to the questions. I've gone way over, I apologize. Um, it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I think the Pope, Right. I obviously my opinions on this case are obviously not too difficult to figure out. But kind of in reflection, what is interesting, I, I do believe from the sense that I get reading, reading the articles, is that Pius IX did not want to kidnap the kid. He was just following the law. He was doing what he felt was appropriate in this case. It's very interesting in, in, let's say, in my own personal life, and I imagine everyone's own personal lives. We all have struggles. We all have challenges of what's right and what's wrong. And typically when we think of our own shortcomings, our own personal transgressions, we tend to look towards like the more baser instincts and drives. I know I shouldn't go ahead and eat that non-kosher hamburger. It looks really good. I'll eat it. I know I shouldn't go ahead and whatever, do you know violate Shabbat, but it's convenient. I'm going to go ahead and do it. I know I shouldn't go ahead and speak Lashon Hara and gossip about my friend, but he's a real jerk and I'd love to expose him. It's like baser drives, like things that we get. That's typically when we think of our own personal transgressions. We tend to like look in that direction. But if you look in writings of, of the Sifrei Musser, of the great Jewish ethicists, they will tell you, of course, that's true. But they will also tell you the path to hell is often paved with good, with good intentions. And don't ignore the fact that oftentimes some of our biggest transgressions are not those transgressions that are being motivated and fueled by those baser motives. They're oftentimes the transgressions of transgressions where we think we're being pious where we think we're being righteous where we think I'm on the moral high ground I go ahead and I see my kid doing something inappropriately so I yell at my child how dare you and I humiliate my child because I see them you know whatever doing something wrong right we've taken the moral high ground I see my child doing something yeah but what did I just do I humiliated my child I yelled at my child that's also wrong your intent wasn't, to, it wasn't a base intent, it was a noble intent, but it was still wrong. And I think that's the story of the Pope. His intent, uh, I'm gonna, let's work hypothetically, I don't know, but let's say hypothetically, his intent was good. That's not an excuse. He kidnapped someone, and what he did was terribly wrong. In June, I have a question. Between the ages of 6 and 19, you know, Eduardo is in, is in the Catholic Church, but by the time he's 19, he's his own... He's his own person. He can make his own choices. Now that he's nineteen, leave the church and go back and embrace his Judaism. Why didn't he do that? Brainwashed. 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 It's very impressionable age. Impressionable. Okay, I'm going to change that word. Brainwashed. I don't like that word. Brainwashed. Indoctrinated. I'll use a more, much better word. How about intimidation? Trained. How about the word educated? Trained. Why do we use the word brainwashed? He was educated. And guess what? This is a powerful pro, I don't think he was, there wasn't a brain, I I mean, brainwashing implies something nefarious. Their overall, the whole story is nefarious. He was educated, right. But the education was educated. He went to a good Catholic He went to a good Catholic school. What's that? You're being too generous. I know. No, I, but education but I think, is much more multifaceted yeah. than just one view. That is educated when somebody has a worldly view. He was not educated, he was only educated in Catholicism. I guess what I'm trying to. You're right, 100%. I don't mean to get into defining education, but my point really is it's a fascinating thing. Is. That's what we mean by where we only learn one way. That's right. Sure. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. I guess the question is, one of the powerful things is, is that we shouldn't be surprised um, the power of education. You look at North American Jewry today. It's a fascinating thing. In Jewish law, you read about a concept. It's a crazy thing. The Talmud talks about what happens to a child, a Tinox Shenzhva Ben Ha'umos, a child who's abducted amongst the nations of the world. Does that child still have the status of a Jew? The halacha is, of course, of course, he does. The term "tinok shenush ba'bein ha'umos" has taken on, in the halachic literature, over the last oh two thousand years, a meaning of its own. It means so often in life, in Jewish history, you have "tinok shenush ba'bein ha'umos." You have children who are abducted between, you know, by the nations. They may have, in some situations, like the case of Eduardo Mortaro, he's literally abducted. But I would make an argument look at North American Jewry today. And you see the expression of Tinoch Shetchenish used to describe you know, modern Jewish life, Jewish life throughout, throughout the ages, where you have people who are at best uneducated about Judaism. And what ends up happening? They become ambivalent to their Judaism. Now, of course, if they're indoctrinated, and I, I think everyone's right, there was a deliberate program to make this kid into a priest. There's no question about it. But doesn't it highlight the value of education? This child's upbringing, this child's DNA was Jewish. His mother was Jewish. His parents were Jewish. It loses to indoctrination. It loses to education. Education is a powerful, powerful thing. And as a society, when we are not, when we are not educating our children... Let's not be surprised that Jewish engagement in North America is at a catastrophically low level, because it really highlights. Education. That's... If you take the child, if you take our kids, for example. Let's open it up to the floor now. That's okay. I, Question. I bring my kids and I give them the option to learn about Judaism, to be part of a community, and yep. later on, my son will turn 18 and he will meet some girl. I did my best to bring him. I did not. And that's all God wants us to do is do our best. Yeah. Oh. Literally brainwashing because he did not even know any other way. For him, that was one way. That's brainwashing. Yeah. Education is something that's happening, opening everybody to everything. And I think it's something that we need to highlight, particularly for our children between the ages of six and nineteen. We got to be very careful the environment that they're. Obviously, if they're indoctrinated, it's going to be horrible. But let's never undervalue the value of a good old-fashioned Jewish education. Okay. Thoughts, questions? Jonathan has a question. Um, I, I think by the reform movement in America existed. Uh, depends how you define it. <laughs> okay okay not to get too off track there was the reason why it was so remarkable is there was no unified jewish community in 1850 in 1858 in the united states there was nothing unified whatsoever you had a couple of rogue people trying you know one guy isaac Mayer wise was trying and by eight in the 1858 it was still brand new first rabbi doesn't make it to the united states 1840 so like there's there's it's a very, very loosely connected Jewish community, which is why the Mortara affair and the fact that Jews kind of, as it were, united against it was so remarkable, because there really isn't this like history of Jews for the last hundred years uniting around anything, and particularly in the United States. It was a scattered community, a really diffused community. Alright, I've gone way over, but uh, I want to thank you all for coming, and if anyone wants to say, okay, the, the program is officially concluded, so I don't want to hold anyone, but if anyone has thoughts or questions, I'm happy to stick around and Thank answer. you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.